Hi, and welcome to A Very 80s Christmas. Welcome. You made it to a very 80s Christmas. I'm Jamie. I've got my eggnog right here, my ugly Christmas sweater on. Hopefully you have done the same and you're ready for this podcast all about Christmas in the 80s. So in this episode, what we're going to do is look at some classic Christmas commercials from the 80s. And I know you can't see them and this is an audio platform, but the audio and the sound of these commercials still works. That should probably trigger a memory of these commercials and nostalgia for that time period. We're also going to look at what was the best-selling toy for each individual year through the entire decade. Okay, let's get right into this. So I'm just going to start and play each commercial and then tell you which that was after, if you didn't already get it in the first place. Okay, here we go. more than any other time of year. This is the season when millions of people discover Polaroid cameras do what no other kind of camera can do. What's this? Thanks for the milk and cookies and thanks for the beautiful Polaroid picture. Love, Santa. Happy holidays from Polaroid. So that, of course, is Polaroid from 1983. So I was younger. I was only like five, but I remember that commercial very specifically, especially Santa at the end and the little girl reading the letter from him. Okay, let's check out the next one. It's a world of celebration, joyful yuletide expectation, where peace and love are felt throughout the land. It's an M&M's chocolate candy season. Moms and Santas know the reason. The milk chocolate melts in your mouth, not in your hand. All the world loves M&M's. They're pure milk chocolate joy for everyone. M&M's chocolate candies. The milk chocolate melts in your mouth, not in your hand. So, of course, M&M's, also from 1983. A lot of these commercials, I think, are all pre-1985, kind of 1985, right in that sweet spot of... Uh, early 80s nostalgia, depending how old you were when you grew up. M&M's specifically now, I still want them every year, the red and green Christmas edition, I think primarily because of that commercial. And I don't know, sort of that holiday edition snack or candy that's always released at that time of year. And it's just become one of those staple items you just sort of buy without thinking, which is probably consumerism doing its job extremely well. Okay. Speaking of consumerism, this one doesn't have as much description, but I think you'll get it.
Did you get it? Had no sort of description of a product or anything. That was the McDonald's commercial from I think 1984 or early 80 or it was that 85. And it's the one where all the kids are going skating and the one younger boy can't keep up with everyone and he's left on his own. And then Ronald McDonald comes out, lifts him up, skates with him, hands him back off to the kids. He's over the moon. Um, you know, it's one of those rare times where a giant, huge corporation like McDonald's wasn't trying to at least shove a product or their brand. Well, I guess they are a little bit with their brand. They're not trying to exactly shove it down your throat. They're just trying to create a special holiday moment in a commercial and sort of, you know, incorporate the season into it and, you know, while still promoting themselves. And, you know, there's no Big Mac, there's no McNugget buddies, there's nothing. It's just the kids skating and the joy and everything. So I, I ho- hopefully you remember that commercial. I remember that one very distinctively. And, the, you know, feeling the sadness for that kid, but it works out in the end for him. So hopefully you remember that one. So this next one is my favorite Christmas commercial ever. Again, there's not a lot of um, uh, commentary or whatever audio through the start of the commercial. And it only aired for a little bit, and I'll explain why. But hopefully you remember this one, too. especially for systems from Atari. The video game that lets you help E.T. get home just in time for Christmas. Happy holidays. So that is the infamous E.T. Atari video game and the Christmas commercial from 1982. So if you don't know the story of the E.T. Atari video game, you're going to have to go back and listen. I did an episode all about it. But this is seen as potentially the worst game ever created. And if not the worst game, the most disappointing ever. And it's seen as what was responsible for sinking the video game industry and eventually bankrupting Atari. But at the time when this commercial went out, there was so much promise behind this game. They put um, between Steven Spielberg and Atari and all the investment, the most money ever spent on a video game um, went into the E.T. Atari video game. The problem is to get this thing out by Christmas, the designer only had five weeks to make it. Like on a good, back then, on an average sort of development time, you're looking at a year. A rushed job would be, say, around 10 months, maybe maybe somewhere between six to 10 months if it was being absurdly pushed along as fast as possible. This thing was done in five weeks to capitalize on the success of E.T. At the time after it hit, E.T. was the highest grossing movie in history, and it would be until 1995 with Jurassic Park. So it's an absolute juggernaut. E.T.'s huge. There's E.T. cereal. They're pushing out all the toys. They've got to get the video game out. Um, Atari's starting to go downhill. It, It was huge like when it first came out in 1979. And we'll talk about a little bit more about that with uh, the toys of the 80s. You know, so it's starting to go down because the quality of the games is not being upkept. And, you know, third-party developers are able to put out games and a lot of them are garbage. And this thing is rushed so quick to get it out. I think it's like 17 to $18 million spent for the rights, the marketing. And, <laughs> and the game was so bad and so poorly received by kids. I remember my neighbor having it. 
And it just like, as a kid, you don't know how to say like, this sucks, but it is enough. You just wanted to stop playing it. Cause it was so frustrating and go back to like Pac-Man or whatever. But at the time when that commercial hit, the hype was through the roof and it still sold around 4 million cartridges, which was a ton but you know, more than half of those would end up getting returned. But the commercials, that perfect little chunk of sort of '80s comfort, uh, you know, Christmas nostalgia, ET, all wrapped into one. Look up that on YouTube if you want to see it fully. But uh, an amazing commercial and a very incredible story. Okay, here's the last one we'll do. Okay, so that is, of course, the Oreo Cookies Christmas commercial from 1987 and one of the best Christmas commercials ever made. Maybe, you know, secondary to like the little later on the Coke holidays are coming commercials, but I don't know. I, if depends if you're like me or not, but that one stands out as probably the best one of the 80s among a lot of other great commercials. So that's just a quick look at some of those uh, maybe forgotten favorites. Hopefully you remember them now. What we'll do next is transition into the best-selling Christmas toys for each year of the entire 1980s. So what makes for a best-selling toy? It, It usually comes down to a combination of a few things. Demand, of course, promotional hype, plus a lack of inventory. If you know something is scarce it's going to drive up the value. And when all those are put together at Christmas time, you've got a time bomb on your hands and, you know, potentially the best selling hottest toy of that year. So there've been some notable toy crazes over the years. None are going to be bigger than the Cabbage Patch Kids craze of 1983, which we'll get to in a minute. A big part of what makes a best selling toy is also a strong marketing campaign which makes a kid want the toy more than life itself. If you show kids playing with that said toy, it can help make the viewing child put themselves into the situation and imagining themselves playing with it. You then add in the variable of what is called pester power, which is exactly what it sounds like. Pester power is very real and it works. This is basically a kid whining for something so much that parents eventually give in. Manufacturers know this pester power helps to drive a majority of a family's purchases. Dining out, grocery shopping, even vacations are determined by kids at least 80% of the time. Sometimes, you know, there's no rhyme or reason for what's going to make the hottest toy each Christmas. You know, notable examples include things like the Furby or Hatchimals, which were big in the last few years. What becomes hot is not always a perfect science, and sometimes they just happen organically. A lot of the times, you know, the best-selling toy these days is more fabrication and, you know, say on like Amazon with their best sellers list, companies and toy manufacturers can pay usually up to $2 million to be listed on the best of toy list on Amazon. So that's not even determined by ratings and people's buying or whatever. It's the companies paying them in. Same thing with Walmart, like uh, the Walmart website website. As early as August, 
companies can pay, I think it's around $10,000 a week to be featured in, you know, like the main profile, whatever, if it's for that toy or for that kitchen appliance or, you know, whatever. So they can sort of manufacture um, what the hype will be for a specific toy or an item going into Christmas. They can do this as far back as August. And again, but then sometimes you you, you never know what's going to catch on. You know what I mean? It's hard to, they can kind of manipulate and analyze kids to death and then still get it wrong. And in the eighties, it was far from a perfect science. And what was hot was a combination of word of mouth and then all those other factors, scarcity, um, just the marketing approach, everything like that. But what's always going to help in pushing this bestseller uh, at Christmas time through the roof is scarcity and a lack of supplies or inventory. And that is, they call it scarcity marketing. And once the interest is driven up into whatever the new hot toy is or any coveted product, marketing the fact that there are limited supplies drives up the demand. And that's when people start getting crazy. And that's when parents want to be the best parent and be the one who comes through for their kids. So their kid isn't neglected and their kid becomes the chosen one and gets whatever the hot toy is at that time. And with manufacturers now, and and I guess probably always when they become real rats is when they specifically hold back inventory to, to create that scarcity when there's plenty of it compared to say the cabbage patch kid thing, when they actually did run out of them. We'll get to that in a sec. So that, that scarcity marketing thing and you see it all the time. It's not just limited to toys. It's probably most prominent with like airlines and hotels. If you ever go on websites and the the site and it claims there are only like two seats left or one seat left. And then scarcity makes you sort of panic. And that tends to rush impulse buying and all that sort of thing. So again, you know, parents just being scared of not being able to come through for the kids at Christmas leads to that higher demand. And then, you know, worst case scenario, the in-store chaos. So, Here's some honorable mentions. Before we get to the best-selling Christmas toys of the 80s, it's worth pointing out a few from the late 70s because they were to become staple items for kids in the 80s. In 1977, you, of course, had Star Wars. These action figures really kicked off the modern era of what toys could be. You had all the familiar characters, vehicles, accessories, uh, and play sets. It's pretty common knowledge now, but this is one of the first, well, not you know first, but a more modern example of you know, pushing the idea of what a hot toy is going to be uh, that season, but also at the same time, a company being completely caught off guard. Kenner was the toy company that won the Star Wars contract with some very other notable companies, including like Mattel and things like that, unfortunately turning them down. There's a few different stories of how this all came about. One is that um, some different companies were going to the building where they were going to sign with George Lucas, but Lucas wasn't there and they didn't come back at the right time and whatever. But eventually Kenner won the, the contract for star Wars. Their plan was, you know, you never know what's going to be a hit. When star Wars came out, it was seen as just very odd and another sort of space movie. And Kenner had this, you know, idea of putting out like a modest line of space toys, not necessarily completely tied in with the movie because no one knew what the movie was yet. So when Star Wars becomes this monster hit, they're caught completely off guard. This led them to create the infamous empty box campaign. And if you might not have heard about this, but since there are no figures available, there's absolutely nothing available. 
they put out the early bird certificate package. So a kid could buy an empty box that was a cardboard display stand and it had a coupon that they would fill out and send to Kenner. When the figures were ready sometime between May and July, <laughs> that that much further after Christmas, they would be mailed out. And it was the original, I think it's eight. Um, sorry, Star Wars nerds, if I'm getting that wrong. The original eight figures. So like... Han, Chewie, the droids. Um, there is a Jawa. I think there's another um, Death Star controller along with like Obi-Wan Kenobi and all that sort of thing. So they're all mailed out that much further after. So it sounds like a disaster in the making, but it actually works. So a little bit of um, good luck and good marketing and planning at the same time because we know, of course, how successful the Star Wars toy line would be continuing into the 80s with the empire strikes back and return of the jedi and that's when kenner you know took over the world of toys other notables of the late 80s would be the popular simon toy if you remember that that's from 1978 which seemed to exist in every house i knew of going into the 80s and then also in 1979 like i mentioned was the release of the atari another staple object of the 80s In 1979, the Atari was hands down the number one selling toy for Christmas and its use carries over into the 80s and then again, and this ties in with the E.T. Atari video game and how that ended up crippling the entire video game industry. It didn't specifically single-handedly cripple the industry, but it sort of was a straw that broke the camel's back. Just check out that episode. It goes way more into detail about this whole thing. Okay. So let's look at the best-selling toys at Christmas for each year in the 80s. A lot of this data comes from the National Museum of Play that um, records a lot of this info and, and history along with Insider.com, which, again, looks back at the, the data and the sales figures and everything like that. Okay, for 1980, see if you can guess before I'd say most uh, – actually, probably half of these you would not get as I didn't get either. So 1980, the Rubik's Cube. The Rubik's Cube is a pretty amazing story of a simple item meant to help math students and then became one of the best-selling toys of all time. The Rubik's Cube was invented by Erno Rubik in 1975, and Rubik was an inventor, an architect, and a professor. So while working as a professor at the Budapest College of Applied Arts, he would often come up with three-dimensional objects as a way to teach his students about space alteration. He wanted to help change their thinking when it came to architecture. The first cube he came up with was made up of blocks of wood and rubber bands to twist it. So very crude prototype, but the main idea was still there. The first commercial versions would be released in Hungary, and it was called the Magic Cube. Ideal Toys would then license it, but release it as the Rubik's Cube in 1980. And to say it was a hit is a massive understatement. Not only was it the best-selling toy of 1980 and found under every Christmas tree that year's year. It was one of the best-selling toys ever. And in that year, in 1980, three of the top 10 best-selling books on the New York Times bestsellers list were instructional books on how to solve the Rubik's Cube. It, it's just, you can't be stated how big this thing was. And again, if you grew up at the time, you probably remember this. It also led to the incredible cartoon Rubik the Amazing Cube, which will be saved for another episode. Moving into 1981, and the biggest selling toy of that Christmas, if you remember your cartoons well, is Smurfs. 
I shouldn't have to explain what a Smurf is to you unless you're a very younger listener. In that case, go ask your parents. But the idea of the Smurfs actually goes back a lot further into 1958. After that, they became used in things like comic books and whatever before they made their way to TV. The Smurfs were created as a Dutch comic franchise by an artist known as Peyo. They were first called the, and I won't be able to say this properly, Stromph which apparently was a made-up word by the artist when he couldn't remember the French word for salt. So I don't know what else he was partaking in as far as other Dutch traditions before the meal, but whatever. The cartoon show debuted on September 12, 1981, and was a massive hit for NBC. It was the winner of awards for excellence in children's programming. It was also nominated for a daytime Emmy. That's how successful the Smurfs cartoon was. Before 1981, Smurf merchandise was limited to a few small figurines. When the show launched, it resulted in an avalanche of Smurf merchandise, including toys, lunchboxes, which I had, plush dolls, Smurf cereal. Over the years, 300 million Smurf figures have been sold, and you probably had a few of them yourself. Smurf toys were the perfect Christmas gift, especially the plush dolls. They were soft cute, and made a massive splash in 1981. The best-selling toy in 1982, if you know your toys, it is My Little Pony, a favorite of bronies everywhere. I grew up with a sister and was all too familiar with My Little Pony. This toy was a juggernaut and would be under many trees during that Christmas of 1982. It would lead to the very popular cartoon show, Movies, and a toy line that has lasted for decades and is still going strong. Everything started with My Pretty Pony in 1981 before it was relaunched as My Little Pony in 1982. The first line of toys started with six small but colorful ponies known as Generation One. So what's important to note about My Little Pony, and I did a whole show on this, I won't go too deep into it, but it's called Deregulation. And this is when the restrictions on advertising to children were lifted by Ronald Reagan and the FCC going into the 80s. And that's why you see a avalanche of new toys, intellectual properties, characters, basically new character licensing went up by 300% going into the 80s. And that's why you see all these things. Because there was free reign now to advertise to kids before where they were held back and you couldn't, you know, use cartoons to promote toys and, and whatever. Basically, all that went to hell going into the 80s and a few specific shows were seen as the first to take advantage of it. The you know notable offenders would be G.I. Joe, Transformers, but also My Little Pony was at the forefront of taking advantage of these lifted regulations. The cartoon shows basically served as a 22-minute commercial to sell the toys. And then in between the show, the commercials were actually selling the toys themselves. And this is important to note. If you recall back, I mean, you might not. If you ever watch these things back now, especially My Little Pony, especially G.I. Joe, within the show, they're always talking to each other in their full names. They would also refer to vehicles or like accessories or anything like that with their full description name. This is so kids would be able to identify exactly what they wanted and know what they were looking for in the stores when the toys were released. The manufacturers wanted to like drill these characters and accessories into the heads of kids by constantly, you know, having their full name and title referred to throughout the episode. So, you know, when you're watching each of these things, you know, you're over the course of 30 minutes, you got a 22 minute show which is a commercial in itself, 
and then filled in with the actual commercials for the toys. So with kids having very little ability to differentiate between cartoon and commercials, this was seen as a big problem. But for, for the FCC and the government, they're like, nope, go nuts. But, you know, ultimately this whole thing worked. By the end of the 80s, specifically with My Little Pony, 150 million items had been sold, and it still remains a billion-dollar property today. Okay, 1983, this one I've already mentioned a few times, the definitive must-have Christmas toy, possibly of all time, and the toy that started what a true toy craze could be, Cabbage Patch Kids. People had bones broken to get these things in 1983. And it, it seemed to really set the stage of what retail hell could be, as well as future events like Black Fridays and what they would evolve into. Again, depending how old you are, you might not know this at all, or you are maybe a little older and remember this very specifically. But, you know, look up on YouTube uh, news reports of the Cabbage Patch Kids craze of the, of the 80s, specifically 1983, and, and how chaotic this whole thing was. And this is amazing considering, you know, no internet, no toy forums, no nothing like that. Just based on demand, craze, a few news items here and there. So the quick story with Cabbage Patch Kids, and I, there's a whole show I've done on this, so you can go the archives and check back. But started as a simple fabric-based toy created by Martha Nelson, Nelson Thomas. She wanted to create a doll that looked like a baby and could actually be played with, unlike, you know, porcelain dolls that were for display only. The quick story is that the idea seems to have been borrowed, using air quotes here that you can't see, by Xavier Roberts, who made them into the version you know today. Remember how I said the factors that make a hot toy, that being popularity, demand, and scarcity? Well, the Cabbage Patch Kids had this in absolute droves, not to mention this all being combined at Christmas. So they hit the market in the fall of 1983, you know, for the perfect lead up to the holiday season. It's hard to pinpoint the exact reason they caught on like wildfire. But again, like those things I I mentioned, like the commercials um, with the kids that you you would, you know, you try to picture yourself as the kid in the commercial playing with it. Um, Originality, uniqueness, you like with these you had, it wasn't just a doll you were buying with a Cabbage Patch Kid. You were buying like the identity of it you were getting you were adopting it you know they had the birth certificate and each one had a name and the brilliant thing they did is they weren't just releasing one doll across the board like a teddy ruxpin where they're all the same they had a variation between nine different heads and then different bodies and then hair so they could interchange so many of these things and create multiple variations of the same thing so i think that's i think that's what the big selling point was the doll you're getting was different from the one your friend had so it made it more special and almost more like customized and catered to you. And again, the doll had the identity and you had the identity of only owning that doll. You know, there'd be some other ones, but there were so many different combinations they could do with the heads and the bodies and the clothing and whatever that each one was very specific. And I think that's what really helped along again with all, you know, the news reports basically created the perfect storm of a Christmas toy. And then scarcity is probably what really lit the powder keg as once the demand started to raise there was simply not enough to go around the average store at best was carrying around 200 to 500 dolls max depending on the size of the, the store and the city they were in but they had thousands and thousands of customers trying to get them this is what led to the riots the trampling 
the damage sustained to the stores, the people, the broken bones. Again, it's, you know, parents will do whatever it takes to provide for their kid. And Cabbage Patch Kids emerged as some sort of necessity, like food or shelter. And these things weren't cheap. They were going for the equivalent of around like 80 bucks a pop. That's, you know, that's a little bit of dough to spend on on a doll. But when you had no choice, this is what was leading. And, you know, and then people were selling them, you know, not black market, but, you know, listed and marked through the roof because people would do whatever they could to get one. So it's a pretty amazing story and one of the biggest, you know, commercial successes of all time when it comes to toys. Okay, so that takes us into 1984 and my favorite toy of all time, Transformers. Here you've got the perfect combination of robots, aliens, battle, novelty, all rolled into one. They weren't just about being transforming robots, which is cool enough on its own. They were ones that came with an amazing backstory and characters. And this was a very smart move done by Hasbro where they made the toys knowing that giving them an identity created more of a universe for them. And, you know, universe is, of course, a really big now, the Marvel Cinematic Universe and DC and all that sort of thing. But at the time, actually, they brought in Marvel Comics to create the universe and the story and their legacy. So Transformers are actually, like a lot of things, not an original idea. They come from the Diaclone toy line in Japan and basically completely lifted straight just with a few colors and name changes. Uh, but that's the difference with the Diaclone toy line. They were just transforming robots. Uh, they didn't have the backstory. They didn't come from Cybertron. There wasn't Decepticons and Autobots and all that. But the Transformers started with a three-part cartoon miniseries, again, that served as a 22-minute commercial. This got us familiar with their history and the main characters in Cybertron and Energon Cubes and everything like that. So the entire first season that came after that, that miniseries, was actually already commissioned and produced before the miniseries even aired. This is like marketing 101 in the 80s and how to roll out a toy line. The miniseries first debuted, of course, in September 1984, leading very nicely into Christmas that year. I don't ever remember toys I wanted more badly in my life. That year in 84, I swore I was getting a sound wave based on the size and shape of a wrap present under my tree from one of my aunts and talking with my friends and trying to compare like the sizes and just like losing my mind until it turned out to be one of those big multi-packs of lifesavers. I don't know if you remember those at Christmas, but never been more crushed in my life. Transformers, though, of course, would continue to be one of the hottest toys of the 80s and also of all time. I've got a whole episode that goes way deeper into the, everything to do with Transformers um, back in one of the early episodes if you want to check that out, if you haven't already. Okay, going into 1985, and I mentioned him in the Cabbage Patch Kids part, and that is Teddy Ruxpin. Everyone remembers Teddy Ruxpin, but it might surprise you to learn what a best-selling Christmas toy he or it was. The thing that makes this even more remarkable is that he was the best-selling Christmas toy in a year that featured some of the most epic toys ever that were all like, we're in the heart of the decade where everything is kind of like going full swing and he still emerged as number one. So the talking bear, Teddy Ruxpin, also an amazing story and a very interesting and incredible piece of technology for the time period. He was designed by a former employee of Disney who got inspiration from work that he did, such as the Country Bear Jamboree, Chuck E. Cheese, like the giant animatronic figures, even the the big characters from Welcome to Pooh Corner, if you remember that show. 
So Teddy started out as a very crude, just prototype of a head on a stick, but was pitched to head of Atari, or sorry, former head of Atari, Don Kingsborough. He was able to see the possibility of this thing being successful because there was some real talent and creativity behind it. He, I believe the guy was Bob Forsey, Fossey, who was the creator of Teddy Ruxman. So uh, Don Kingsborough was really buying into him and his creativity and his insights. So the goal with Teddy Ruxpin, again, like with most toys, was to get it out by Christmas. So when this thing was greenlit, it gave its creator and its team and his team only six months to do this. So, I mean, to get this thing from from a prototype, from this little head on a stick to store shelves in six months is absurd. But they made it happen. But it cost them. $60 million was put into the production to get him finished on time. And it obviously worked. So Teddy was released under uh, the toy name Worlds of Wonder and sold a staggering 41,000 units in the first 30 days. The plan was to launch him with his own series like every other toy was doing at the time, but it turns out they didn't even need it. From just September to the end of 1985, Teddy Ruxman brought in $93 million. Converted for today, that's around $220 million. So Teddy was the big hit that year and would continue to be. There's still iterations and versions of Teddy Ruxman's you can buy that are now that's like more digital and it's got um, digital eyes that move around. And, you know, so Teddy Ruxman, you know, lasted the course of time. Okay, 1986, the hottest selling Christmas toy. Might surprise you because it's a little later, G.I. Joe. So G.I. Joe goes way back further into the early 80s, but from a survey of 3,000 U.S. retailers published in the November issue of Toy and Hobby World magazine, G.I. Joe was the best-selling toy of 1986. So again, the toys, the original toys came out in or the, the modern version. G.I. Joe goes back to the 60s, but the version we know in the 80s came out in 1982, accompanied by a Marvel comic series, and then the cartoon series came out in 1983. But the success in 1986 actually makes sense for a few reasons. The first, the cartoon was now more established and part of the, you know, popular zeitgeist for every young male in existence, myself included. All the characters, vehicles, and shows had been released now creating one giant collective and complete universe. Everything was there. The cartoon show was established as must-watch TV after-school um, viewing and it aired in that sweet 3 to 6 p.m. time slot. So that was like our regular day now. The cartoon went into full series in 1985 with 55 episodes after previously existing as 30 second cartoon commercials in 1982, then two different five part miniseries in 1983 and 84. So even though it goes back that way, it wasn't really till 1986 where it was like cemented into pop toy culture if you want to call it that so here here's actually some um other interesting facts besides gi joe that year from the christmas of 1986 teddy ruxman was still the number four best-selling toy cabbage patch kids somehow were still at number six and at number two the adorable pound puppies i've got another show all about that too because the pound puppies took on that same uh i guess persona i don't know if you want to call that as the cabbage patch kids where as in, instead of just being this stuffed dog they came with more of an identity you, again you were adopting them they came with adoption papers they came in a little doghouse caring hut which was also the packaging 
they again they had more of this identity so it was something you could buy into and just a, instead of this stuffed animal that would sit on a shelf and they're another amazing success story uh toward the 80s actually invented by a factory worker who worked in I forget, Chicago or in Wisconsin and just worked with like ball bearings and, and stuff like that and just came up with this idea of something his daughter would like and the uh, actually the original prototype I think had the ball bearings in it or whatever like that but again just one of these million dollar ideas okay moving into 1987 you'll never guess this one I'm gonna assume but it is Jenga I think every household on earth has Jenga somewhere in it. And the thing that's interesting with Jenga is you may think of it as like an ancient type game that's existed for thousands of years, but it's actually a modern original idea. It was created in England by a woman named Leslie Scott. So Scott grew up in England and East Africa, and it was a game that her family had created in the 70s. They lived near a sawmill and purchased some blocks and created a stacking game that they found very simple, fun, but also addictive. When deciding what to call it, they came up with a few names, including Cheza, but went with a variation of the Swahili name Kojenga, which means to build. They just dropped the Ko. Jenga started as a real grassroots project in 1982, and it was only sold at toy fairs throughout the UK. The first commercial launch of Jenga would happen in Canada in 1985 before being released worldwide. Toy company Irwin was behind this, but they hated the name Jenga. They thought that it wouldn't mean anything to anyone and they didn't know how they were going to sell and market this game. Scott stuck to her guns to keep the name Jenga and it was fully launched at the Toronto Toy Show in 1986. 400,000 orders were placed right there that day when it was launched, which is insane. By 1987, Irwin licensed it to Shaper Toys in the U.S., who was bought by Hasbro, who released Jenga under the Milton Bradley name. Jenga then really took off with the very popular and one of the most memorable commercials of all time. So Jenga is a massive hit, and it made it the must-have toy for 1987. It continued to sell at least 4 million units a year up until the year 2000. And now you can get those giant bar version Jengas that you can play drinking games with and all that, but a massive, massive hit. Okay. 1988. And you won't believe this one, but this is what the actual stats say. You might not even have heard of this one. The best selling Christmas toy, 88, the Koosh ball. Do you remember that? The little ball with all the threads, like the rubber threads that were, was light and you could throw around and it was sort of multicolored. Um, again, you might not <laughs> totally remember it, but you've definitely seen one. You probably had one, and it was the best-selling Christmas toy of 1988. Again, like most toy ideas, the simplicity of the Koosh ball is probably what helped lead to its success. It's a soft, squishy ball with rubber strings attached. You could throw it as hard as you wanted and not really hurt anything. It wasn't going to break stuff. Um, you know, It would probably knock a vase off the shelf or whatever, but it wasn't going to shatter things because it was so rubbery and sort of flimsy. I think the big appeal here and what made it the best-selling toy for Christmas was the fact it was cheap. Every kid could get one of these and, you know, it was easy. It was affordable. Kids weren't going to feel left out and they were going to get the hot toy of the year. Compare this to, say, asking for a Teddy Ruxpin, which again, back then it cost, when it came out, 
the equivalent cost today would be $160. And the cassettes were like $12.95 a pop, which is something like $22 each. That's an expensive toy. So if it came between that and a Koosh ball, you're going to get the Koosh ball. It was created by a guy named Scott Stillinger, who wanted something to help his kids learn to catch. He started putting together something using a, a box of rubber bands and all this stuff and came up with a prototype that he brought to his brother-in-law who worked for Mattel. The ball is made of 2,000 rubber strings and the name Koosh comes from the sound made when you caught it. Some people didn't get it at first, but consumers did, making it a Christmas bestseller. Okay, and rounding out the decade for 1989, the hottest selling toy at Christmas, you'll probably know this one, the Game Boy. Again, see, I'm not sure if you consider the Game Boy a video game or a toy or if that is the same thing, and it probably is, but according to Reader's Digest, the Game Boy was king in 1989 when it came to Christmas sales. Again, video games are back on the upswing now, mostly thanks to the NES, but the Game Boy really caused a frenzy. It it seems kind of quaint now, but being able to take your video game on the go was pretty mind-blowing. And these weren't like those crappy little handheld games that you had earlier in the decade. This was an actual video game system. And it's, you know, the 8-bit handheld device released by Nintendo. It first came out in Japan in April of 1989, then in North America in July. The cool thing with the Game Boy was that you felt like you actually had a portable NES with you because it even had the same familiar control pad built into the Game Boy. It had the same buttons and controller. It just, everything felt familiar. You could immediately pick it up and know where you were at. It was black and white, but it didn't matter because the whole concept worked. Not to mention the monumental success of one of the featured games, Tetris. And Tetris would be the driving force behind the early success of the Game Boy as it's one of the most popular and addicting games of all time. When the Game Boy was first released in North America, it sold 40,000 units its first day. So it's then off and running to become the hottest toy of Christmas and the entire year. So to finish this up, what would you think was the overall best-selling toy of the entire 80s? When we look at all these things in each year, what was the one that took the cake as the crown prince of the 80s? To determine this, though, we have to do a few things. We have to look at this as toys that were released during the 1980s because some toys created earlier in earlier decades, such as Barbie, Lego, Hot Wheels, continue to be massive sellers in the 80s. But pushing those out of the way, the one toy that emerges as a single best-selling toy of the entire 1980s, drum roll, the Rubik's Cube. Again, and I kept going on about it, but it can't be understated what a phenomenon and massive seller the Rubik's Cube really was. It would end up selling an astonish, astonishing 350 million units. And this is another one of those toys that just seemed to exist in every house. A lot of times you probably don't even remember buying or getting a Rubik's Cube. You just always seem to have one. It's not only the biggest seller of the 80s, but one of the most successful toys in history. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed a very 80s Christmas. Hopefully that triggered some memories of some things um, you loved and remembered during that decade. And hopefully you learned a few things as well, too, especially with the list of the best selling toys. So that's it for me. Thanks for listening. Have a Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy everything. All that good stuff. And I'll talk to you soon. Bye.